Do you like courtroom dramas? Uh, TV shows and movies that have courtroom scenes are very popular nowadays. Just think of all the Law and Order episodes and all the many spin-offs from the Law and Order series. Uh, generations ago, back when they had black and white TVs, uh, Perry Mason or maybe Matlock, a little bit after that, were the big courtroom dramas. Uh, there's a recent Netflix miniseries on the O.J. Simpson trial, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. I saw it uh, last year and I've all, I just started re-watching it again. It brought back a lot of memories for me. I'm actually old enough to remember back in 1994 where I was when I heard about the white Bronco chase through uh, L.A. The trial of the century, as it was called, divided the nation and generated high TV ratings. It really uh, put 24-hour cable news on the map, uh, in, in a way. Uh, it raised issues of bias and trustworthiness of evidence. It was a real-life courtroom drama that people were, were watching constantly. It was probably, uh, from what I heard uh, in researching it, probably the most famous criminal trial in human history. Why are we so spellbound by legal cases, whether they're fictional or real? Why are they so appealing? Well, I think it's because the stakes are so high. Someone's life or someone's freedom are at stake in the verdict. We wonder, what does the evidence show? What will the judge or jury decide? Who will make the more persuasive argument, or the more persuasive case? As we think about courtroom dramas, what do all these cases have in common? Well, someone's in trouble with the law, and they have a defense attorney a lawyer representing them. You know, we all need an attorney. Maybe not in this earthly life. Uh, many of you uh, try to avoid attorneys at all costs, and that's understandable. Go ahead, insert lawyer joke here, and I know quite a few of them. But we need an attorney to plead our case before God's court of justice. And that's what the, today's passage is all about, our need for an attorney. If you would uh, please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. If you want to use one of the Bibles provided there in the chairs, that's on page 707. I think it'll really help you. We're really just going to work through these six verses, and I think it'll be really helpful to have that in front of you. We're going to refer to it a lot. So while you're turning there to either page 707 or 1 John chapter 2, if you go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and start flipping back a little bit, you'll get there. Uh, we'll, we'll do a real quick series recap. So... This isn't a series. While Kyle is preaching, he's preaching through Luke. When I have the honor uh, of preaching, I'll be working through 1 John. And the series is called Basics for Believers, Basic Foundational Truths for Believers. You might call them elemental truths. Uh, John uses simple language, but he often says very profound things. Um, and we've also looked at one of the ways we're thinking about this series are three elements of the Christian life or three tests for these elements. We have truth. There are certain things that must be believed in order to have true Christianity, the truth test. Then there's light, or living according to the truth. Um, that's our morality, what we do, how we live our lives. So we could call that the morality test or the truth or the light test. And then there's love. What, who, how we love shows if we are really a Christian. So we'll call that the love test. Today, uh, the first two verses are heavy on truth. And then the last four verses, we see a lot about the light and the light test with, I think you'll see some love sprinkled in in various places. So now that you've had plenty of time to turn to 1 John chapter 2, uh, page 707, let's go ahead and read that together. Uh, just follow along in your Bibles. I'll read aloud. My little children, 
I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. My title today is, Do You Have an Attorney? Do you have an attorney? And we have three simple points today. Why you need an attorney, how you can have an attorney, and how you know you have an attorney. So my first point, why you need an attorney. We see this in verse one. Uh, Really, I can answer this question, why you need an attorney, in one word, sin. The presence of sin. Well, what is sin? Maybe you're not familiar with this very religious, Christian-y concept. Uh, Basically, if you do a, a study of the Bible, you'll find that sin is doing what is wrong, It's disobeying God's commands, and it's also missing the mark or failing to make the standard of what God expects. And uh, uh, it's really our greatest problem. If you really look through the scriptures, you realize we have many problems in this world, but sin really is our greatest problem because it separates us from a holy God. Now, in order to understand the uh, sin problem that we all have that requires us to retain a heavenly attorney, let's unpack uh, this first verse. So notice how John starts in verse 1. He says, my little children, or as the NIV uh, translates it, my dear children. This shows several things. It shows John's age. He is like, uh, the Apostle John is likely a very old man at this stage in his life. Also shows his spiritual authority and experience. He is an apostle. He was a companion and close friend of Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. It all, but it, primarily it shows tender affection. It's a term of endearment. He is calling his original audience, and by extension us, Dear children, that's how John feels about his fellow Christians. So you kind of see the love element like we've been talking about there. And what he says next is one of at least four of the purpose statements that he gives for writing this letter, this epistle. Uh, Notice the rest of the verse uh, there. I am writing these things so that you may not sin. John is writing this letter to help people not sin. Now as an aside... Notice the connection here between his love and his warning about sin. It is a loving thing to warn people about their sin. Now, that's very countercultural today, right? So not affirming someone's particular sin is often considered intolerant or even hateful in today's culture. But as John is showing for us here today, loving someone and warning them about sin, as long as that warning itself is loving, are not contradictory. So John is telling us not to sin. But some of you may be thinking, but the Bible clearly says all have sinned, right? Why is he telling us not to sin when the Bible says in Romans 3.23 and many other places, all have sinned? Other than Jesus, there's no human being in the history of the world who has never sinned, who is totally sinless. Well, it helps to know who John is talking to, who John's primary audience is in this little letter. He is writing to believers. His audience is believers, people who have had their sins forgiven by repenting of their sins and believing in Jesus. So they've been forgiven of their sins. It's similar to what Paul says in Romans. He says, you've been freed from sin. Why in the world would you go back to the bondage of sin once you've been freed? Or uh, several times when Jesus, during his earthly ministry, would forgive someone of their sins, many times he'd follow that up with, go and sin no more. 
However, this doesn't just apply to Christians. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure you're a Christian, or you're still trying to make up your mind about the claims of Christianity, still listen closely. These truths have uh, important application for you too. These truths, if believed and embraced, can save your eternal soul. And even though this passage is primarily speaking to people who have been forgiven, um, this, to help them to stop sinning, the same truth John unpacks here can give you uh, hope that your sins can be forgiven and that your life and lifestyle can be radically transformed. So this verse is written to Christians who have had their sins forgiven to urge them to not go on continuing a pattern of sin. Of course, even as Christians, we still have a sinful nature to fight, right? The Lord just doesn't magically take that away when we get saved. And so we will often give in to temptation and sin, commit particular acts of sin, even after we've been saved. I like how uh, Chris Anderson uh, a pastor down in the, uh, the Atlanta area, describes uh, verses 1 and 2 in his devotional called Gospel Meditations for Men. I think there's still a copy out there at the bookstall, men, if you're looking for a good uh, way to start a regular time of devotions. But in his entry in Gospel Meditations for Men for, for day 31, he calls these verses the survival guide for sin. So for Christians, he says, not sinning is plan A. So, you know, you have the Holy Spirit. There's a real sense in which you can have significant victory over sin and temptation through the power of the indwelling spirit. So that's plan A, don't sin. That's the first part of verse 1. However, we will still commit acts of sin, even after we've been forgiven. And that's where the rest of verse 1 and verse 2 come in. This is plan B. Let's take a look at the rest of verse 1. But if, or you might translate that when you do, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So plan B is to rely on an advocate. Now the word advocate here is the Greek word paraclete, which basically means helper. Jesus uses this word paraclete uh, for the Holy Spirit. Remember in the Gospel of John where he's telling his disciples about the coming comforter or the paraclete, the helper who would come after he left? In this context, uh, Jesus is being our helper uh, regarding our sin problem with God the Father. This is why the word gets translated here as advocate, because he's not just helping us, he's helping us with our broken relationship with God the Father. Jesus is acting as our lawyer, our defense attorney, before a holy and just God who cannot tolerate any sin. And unlike even the best earthly judge uh, here on earth, our heavenly judge has no bias and he can't be deceived. He knows everything. One of the commentators I I, uh, read for this passage uh, mentioned how with the Holy Spirit, we have a helper inside of us, and with Jesus Christ, we have a helper in heaven. Also notice how Jesus is described in this verse, uh, there at the end of that verse. Jesus Christ, the righteous, or as the NIV translates it, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. These uh, various titles tell us a lot about Jesus. Jesus, that's his earthly name. It means Jehovah saves. And it, among other things, shows his humanity. He really was and is a human being. Christ, that's basically another word for Messiah or the anointed one, the promised one from throughout the Old Testament prophecies of a deliverer. And third, righteous or the righteous one. This shows that Christ is sinless. He never broke God's law. He never did something that was immoral or unjust. It also talks about his deity, the fact that he is God, because the righteous one is a title for God himself. These identities of Jesus are important because they help establish how it is that Jesus can be 
our defense attorney. Why he's qualified to be our defense attorney. He must be a man, he must be God, and he also must be sinless. These identities help us understand our next point. So the first point was why, we need an, why you need an attorney. Second point, how you can have an attorney. We see this in verse 2. So how is it possible that we can have an attorney like that? How can we get Jesus as our lawyer? And what kind of a defense does he offer? Look at verse 2. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is an important word. You know, sometimes, you know, knowing a fancy $50 theological word like hypostatic union isn't as important as knowing and understanding what the underlying truth is. But propitiation, this is one of those words I really encourage you to learn this word. I think you'll, you'll be really uh, blessed by knowing this $5 theological word, okay? Uh, it's one you should know. It's one you should appreciate. And really, it's one that you should treasure. Propitiation means appeasement or satisfaction. And if you look throughout the whole Bible, it's often con- this word is often connected to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Uh, in fact, uh, it especially comes up in that one special day in the year during the Jewish um, high holidays, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That in the Old Testament, that one time a year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he'd offer a blood sacrifice at the mercy seat on behalf of his sins and of the sins of the entire people. And the Day of Atonement, even though the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, is still the highest of the Jewish high holidays, even to this day. John MacArthur, when he's talking about uh, propitiation in this passage, says, Christ's sacrificial death on the cross satisfies the demands of God's justice, thus appeasing his holy wrath against believers. Only Jesus can satisfy the just wrath of God against sin. Friends, emphasize this truth, treasure this truth, and rejoice in this truth. But I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, This truth is somewhat controversial today. Maybe some of you are even right now are kind of wondering about this, or maybe you've heard some objections, but you ought to be prepared to know that there are some common objections to this concept of propitiation. Um, So one of them is uh, the angry God objection. A lot of people don't like to think of God as angry, ever. Uh, But if you read the entire Bible, you realize a good God must be angry with evil. Maybe some of you have had angry fathers, and so the idea of an angry God is very troubling to you. But you need to understand that unlike a sinful earthly father, our heavenly father is only angry when he should be and in the proper proportion to the evil he's angry with. The Bible says uh, in Proverbs that God is angry with the wicked every day. He is angry because he's good. Well, some people uh, don't like this doctrine because it sounds to them like cosmic child abuse. What father sacrifices his son for somebody else? That just sounds abhorrent. Well, don't think of God the Son as a helpless, vulnerable, dependent child who who can't make decisions for himself and is, is vulnerable like that. Yes, yes, he became a vulnerable child at Bethlehem, but he has eternally existed in the position of God the Son. Unlike all of us, before Jesus was conceived, he had existed for eternity past. And he has always existed as the eternal God the Son. Not because he's less than equal with God the Father, because that, but that, because that's his position. He's co-equal with God. And in eternity past, when the plan of salvation was first come up with, Jesus 
God the Son fully consented to the plan. As we know from the gospel accounts, Jesus went willingly to the cross. And even though he knew the shame and the suffering he would endure there, the Bible says that he valued the joy set before him, saving us even more. Some people object to this teaching of propitiation because it just sounds so pagan. It sounds like some sort of primitive, savage religion, like throw Joe into the volcano to keep the angry volcano god from destroying the island. Some of you get that movie reference. (laughs) But God is not a capricious, sinful God who makes unreasonable demands, and he's not satisfied by our pathetic little offerings. He is the perfectly just judge of all the earth, and only his sinless son can satisfy his just wrath. There's also a host of academic objections, people who are smarter than me and far more degrees than me who will will go through and say, oh, well, you don't really understand it. God really isn't saying propitiation in that sense, but I'm sorry, if you read through the whole Bible and you study it out, the plain meaning of the Bible is clear, that, that God is a holy, just God who is angry with sin and he must be appeased if he's going to show love and mercy to any fallen sinner. And then finally, the final objection, I call this the yes, but objection. Yes, yes, I, I agree that propitiation is what it is and it, and it, it uh, is true, but you, know, you, you can't emphasize that too much. You know, there's so many other truths. You might, uh, they might accuse those of us who treasure this truth and consider ourselves gospel-centered of being too atonement-centered. Now, I, I just don't understand how you can be too atonement-centered. Now, I will admit there are other truths in the Bible besides this truth, and there are other ways of thinking about salvation. There's adoption, there's community, there's covenant, there's kingdom, there's healing from our sin and cleansing from our sin. But you can't enjoy any of these beautiful images unless you are declared righteous. You're justified through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus, his propitiation for the wrath of God. Propitiation, this is a crucial truth. Jesus satisfied God's just wrath against sinners. And you might be wondering that, okay, so this is how he can be our defense attorney. What does he argue? What, what kind of legal case could he possibly make for us? Does he find some clever loophole that gets us off the hook? Does he proclaim our innocence? This person didn't do it. Well, that won't work because we know we've all sinned and we know God knows all things. So we know the innocence argument isn't going to work. Uh, does he come up with some rhetorical smokescreen that just kind of confuses uh, the, uh, the finder of fact in this case? Or does he play on emotions and somehow kind of cloud the issue and and get us off the hook. No. What is the one argument that Jesus makes? I died for this person. That's it. That's his one legal argument. You want to study this out a little bit more, I, I recommend the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus intercedes for us with the Father. How is that? It's because he's the great high priest who offered his own body as the sacrifice of atonement. Unlike the old high priest on the Day of Atonement back in the old temple, he has no sins of his own to make atonement for. And instead of offering an animal, he offered his own body once for all. Again, read the book of Hebrews if you want to study that out. But Jesus' only legal argument is, I died for this person. Well, who benefits from this propitiation? Who, Who can benefit from the fact that he died for sinners? We see that phrase there, the whole world. Now, we need to understand that when Jesus says that his propitiation is for the whole world, that does not equal universalism, uh, which is a fancy way of saying all people will be saved. We are not all okay. It's not all going to just work out for everybody. 
Uh, we know from Jesus' own teachings that not all will believe in him and receive forgiveness of sins. Not everyone will be saved. So I thought the ESV Gospel Transformation Bible, uh, their, their notes, had really three, had, was really helpful in articulating the three options that we have here for dealing with what does it mean that he was a propitiation for the whole world. First option, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for all, though applicable only to those placing their faith in him. Option two, Christ's sacrifice is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise to bless all the nations of the earth through the Messiah. Option three is that Christ's sacrifice is able to save believers from all the world, regardless of ethnicity or past loyalties. Now, wherever you come down on the the theological controversy over the extent of the atonement, I'm not even going to tell you what I think. If you want to talk to me afterwards, I can tell you what I think. But... uh, Regardless of where you come down on that particular issue, we know that Jesus didn't just die for one race or ethnicity, but his plan includes people of every race and every language trusting in Jesus. Just read the end of the book of Revelation if you want to see that beautifully on display. And this is one of the motivations for missions, is that we want people of every race, every language to glorify God by believing in Jesus. Friends, if you have repented of your sin and place your faith in Christ, Christ is your propitiation. He died for you. Just look at Romans 3.25 sometime. Uh, There it's very clear. Jesus is the propitiation for who? He is the propitiation for those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. And friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news, that though all of us are sinners, we've all fallen short and deserve punishment, Christ died for sinners. He died in the place of sinners. He was a substitute for sinners. Therefore, if you will admit your sin, determine in your heart to turn from it, that's repentance, and believe in Jesus, that's faith, relying on only what he has done and not on your own good works, you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven, and you can rest assured that you have a home in heaven. Now, if you have questions about this, how you can know your sins are forgiven, please don't, don't waste any time. Talk to me afterwards. Talk to one of our many members here today. Uh, we would love to show you from the Bible how you can know your sins are forgiven through Christ's propitiation for sinners. So this is how Jesus can be our attorney. He's sinless. He died on the cross as a propitiation for our sins. If we put our faith in him, he becomes our attorney and advocates or intercedes for us with the Father. But if Jesus is our attorney, if we've retained Jesus as our defense attorney, there will be some evidence of that in our lives. So our final point here, how you know you have an attorney. And this is in uh, verses 3 through 6. It's a real short answer. How you know you have an attorney? Obedience. You will seek to obey God. You will seek to obey Christ. And really, this is the light test. Remember our last sermon? We looked at a passage that really talked about how you know you're a Christian. It's by living the light lifestyle, right? Walking in darkness rather than walking in the light rather than walking in darkness. Here, John is again talking about the light test. So let's quickly go through verses three through six and notice the ways John explains the light test here. Verse three, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Notice that by this here. That's test language, saying, hey, this is how you know by this. And then that, that second ver- uh, word, know there, this isn't just a head knowledge. Know means an intimate knowledge. It means a relationship. So he's saying here, 
This, this is how we can know that we have a personal relationship with Jesus, is that we keep his commandments. Keep his commandments, the moral commands that he's given to us. And this kind of brings up the, the issue of how Christians relate to the Old Testament commands. Clearly, the Bible says, especially the writings of the Apostle Paul, that we don't have to become Jews. We don't have to uh, fulfill all the ceremonial laws of the Jews in order to be good Christians. However, those universal commands that show uh, universal, timeless morality that show the character of God, those are still binding on, on us. Many of those are reiterated again in the New Testament. So if we claim to know Jesus, we're going to want to keep his commandments. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This is the same concept of verse Three only phrased in the negative. So he's saying that if you claim you know Christ, but you don't keep his commandments, you're lying. Either you're, in, you're deceiving yourself or you're living a lie. Next, we'll look at the first part of, of verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Keeps his word. That's another way of saying keep, keeps God's commandments. And uh, notice that phrase, love of God. You know, that, that little word of... In, in English, it can mean a lot of things, right? Well, the same thing in that little, uh, what is that, a conjunction, preposition? Preposition, right? Grammar gurus out there. Anyway, that little preposition in the Greek language also can mean many different things depending on the context. So Bible commentators say, is it love from God? Is it love uh, that we get, receive from God? Or is it love to God? Probably the best interpretation is our love for God. But honestly, it probably includes all three. I mean, John loves double and triple meanings in a lot of his phrases. And if you read later on in First John chapter 4, he makes it very clear the only way that we can love God is because God first loved us. So uh, I think it's probably all involved here. And, and notice that word perfected. It's basically saying it is a, it's a process. It's improving. Our love is becoming more complete and more mature as we keep his word. It evidences that we uh, have that love that is being perfected in us, and uh, it's, what, it's the natural result of it. So again, this is kind of the love test again here too. This how it shows you how the love test and the light test are very closely related. Well, notice the rest of verse 5 and then verse 6, and this is a little helpful example here of how chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. They are a very helpful uh, reference tool that was added later, but uh, end of verse 5 and then verse 6 here. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In him. Uh, Paul loves this phrase too. He talks about being in Christ. It basically means that we're believers in Jesus. We're Christians, true Christians. And then that phrase, abides in him. Maybe some of you are thinking of a Jeff Bridges movie where he says, the dude abides, man. It's not that. It's not, it's not some sort of Eastern mysticism, transcendental meditation, mindfulness, just, you know, you know man, just be, abide. That is not what, what Jesus is saying here. This is not hippie Jesus here, okay? If you want to know what Jesus means by abiding, I, I would recommend that you study out John chapter 15. Uh, this is one of the last I am statements that Jesus made in his earthly ministry. He says, I am the true vine and you are the branches. I encourage you to read it. It's, it's, it's beautiful, and then you'll see a lot of the connections between that chapter and the epistle of 1 John that we've been studying it. But basically, abiding in Jesus means uh, we're connected to him. We stay connected to Jesus. We maintain that relationship, which would involve, since we continually sin, continual confession of our sins and reconciliation with Jesus. It means living dependently 
on Jesus. That's what it means to abide. So what is Jesus saying here? If we claim that we abide in him, we ought to what? Walk in the same way that Jesus walked. We ought to live our lives the same way that Jesus lived his. That's, do you live like Jesus? Do all of us in here live perfectly like Jesus? I know I don't. I, I fall short in many ways, in my reactions to the stresses of life, in my priorities, in my thoughts, so many different ways I fall short of this standard. But those who are abiding in Jesus should more and more begin to reflect Jesus Christ in their own lives. Remember those old, how many of you remember the old WWJD bracelets? Anyone? Some people still remember those. What did that stand for? What would Jesus do, right? And really, I can't criticize it too much. I mean, it really is a helpful way to think about how we as Christians should live our lives. I'm not a big fan, though, because when other people see that, I think it gives the impression that that's, that's what Christianity is. And I don't think that's what would Jesus do as a good summary of Christianity, uh, but it is a good summary of how we should live the Christian life. No one can be saved by trying to be like Jesus. And there are some uh, well-meaning people out there, some denominations that will say, that's how you get to heaven. You try to be like Jesus as much as you can, but that will not work. But if you have been saved, you should want to be like Jesus. So we've seen the need for an attorney, and we can see, we've seen how we can have an attorney and how we know if we have an attorney. What are some practical applications uh, for our lives? First of all, is the way you're living your life, your lifestyle, evidence that Jesus is your attorney? Are you seeking to, to obey God's commands? Are you even trying? Are you content to live a lifestyle of open disobedience or maybe secret disobedience? You think, hey, as long as nobody else finds out, I'm good. Do you ever confess your sins and seek to change? If you claim to be a Christian, but you make no effort to live like Christ, you're living a lie. Second application, maybe you're more of a legalist in this room. You know, some of us grew up in uh, traditions that you might, you might say are legalistic in some fashion. You're really good at keeping rules. And down deep, you really don't think you're that bad. I mean, we can all find someone out there who's worse than us, right? So you're like, ah, I'm not really that bad. You know, I, I think I can make a good case for myself. Like, I remember uh, talking to a coworker one time and, uh, and uh, asking him how he thought he could get to heaven. He's like, well, I figure, you know, I'll get to the, the pearly gates and St. Peter will have me do some corrective PT. I'll do some push-ups and then eventually he'll let me in. Friends, that's not how it works. Uh, uh, you can't keep enough rules to get into heaven. If, you're, if you, you're tempted to think that, this passage should humble you. We all need an attorney. None of us is good enough or clever enough to represent ourselves in this courtroom. Indeed, only the humble, the poor in spirit, or those who recognize their sin will inherit eternal life. Maybe you're someone here who's committed some big sins. Some of you are under no illusions about your sinfulness. Some of you have done some serious sins in your past, and you live with constant regret over what you've done. Friends, let this passage give you hope. Despite your great sin, God's grace through Christ is greater than all your sin. As Jesus observed, those who have been forgiven much, love much. So let that great forgiveness that you have received fuel a lifestyle of love for God. Final application is to rejoice. All of you this morning have great cause. All of those of you in here who have turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, who are believers, have great cause to rejoice. To have complete joy, as John talked about in the first four verses of this letter. 
Despite your circumstances, you can rejoice. Whatever you're dealing with today, whether it's a health issue, it's a broken relationship or a breaking relationship, whether it's a disappointing career, whether it's financial troubles, or whether it's just the nasty weather outside, you can have real joy through Christ. Christ has met your greatest need, the forgiveness of sins, by being your propitiation and pleading your case before the Father's judgment throne. Uh, This should encourage your hearts this morning. I love this quote from Martin Luther, who was a man who knew what it was like to struggle with a guilty conscience. So when the devil throws your sin in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell, what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I will be also. Let me close with a personal story. Some of you know that in a past life, before I joined the army, I was a lawyer. Uh, And there's an old saying among attorneys, he who represents himself has a fool for a client. What's, what's What's that getting at? Basically, even if you are an attorney, and especially if you're not, rarely is it a good idea to represent yourself in court, to be your own attorney. Uh, And one time when I was uh, practicing law back in the day, I I saw some brothers learn this lesson the hard way. See, these brothers had a wind turbine business. And so they were going around telling people, hey, if you pay us this much money, we'll we'll build some wind turbines for you, and you'll be able to generate your own electricity, and eventually it'll pay for itself because you'll make all this money back from the power station. Well, we had some clients that uh, paid for these, and they hardly made any uh, electricity at all, and they certainly never made any money off of it. And so they sued through my firm. And uh, we got a judgment against these brothers, against their company, that is, for three times the money that my client spent. That's because in Indiana, if you're, if you're held to have committed uh, fraud, you are liable to treble damages. So three times the actual cost of what you're liable for if the court finds that you committed fraud. So we, this is what we got against their company. Well, I came in on the case in order to try to collect some money for our clients. It's one thing to get a judgment in the court of law, but it's another thing to actually get any money from that judgment. So I came in, and and some of you know who are business types know that um, generally, uh, if you own a business, you can't be held liable for the debts of that business. Uh, That's one of the many reasons that you would want to set up a corporation, not just for tax reasons. Uh, That's the, the corporate veil, if you will, that protects the owners. But I was going to try to prove that they didn't deserve that protection. Because uh, under the law, if you don't respect all the corporate formalities, you don't file the proper paperwork, you don't treat the money of the corporation like it's a separate entity and you just use it for your own personal uh, issues, then you're not entitled to that that, uh, protection. And so my job, I was going to try to prove that these guys didn't use the corporation right and that we could hold them personally liable for this fraud debt. Well, several times as we were filing uh, motions and had hearings, the judge several times said, you guys need to hire an attorney. You guys should not represent yourself in this matter. You need to hire an attorney. And for whatever reason, whether it was laziness or because they were too cheap, they just didn't. Uh, and they found themselves, so they found themselves getting questioned by me on the witness stand for over two hours, going through their bank statements and other records showing that they misused their corporation and should be held personally liable. And I won. I pierced the corporate veil, as they say in, in legalese. They try, and then they try to declare personal bankruptcy and found out the hard way that you can't discharge debts that involve fraud in bankruptcy court. 
So they had no option but to pay. Eventually, we worked out this arrangement. Like, listen, I know you don't want to pay triple damages. So here, here's the deal. We'll, we'll come up with an amount that's acceptable to our client. And as long as you make regular payments, we won't hold you liable for, for uh, triple damages. But as soon as you give us a late payment or stop paying, you're on the hook for the whole thing again. That gave them some good in, uh, incentive. And honestly, I got to say, these guys were, were friendly about it. Like, I used to see one of the brothers at the gym all the time. He'd be like, hey, Dan. Like... Hey, um, and when it got to that, be that time of the month, and we were kind of a little bit late on payment, I'm like, hey man, where's my check? It was, it was literally like Jerry Maguire, show me the money. <laughs> so why do I share this story? Not to brag on my ability to pierce the corporate veil, but uh, I share this story because it's, it's not a good idea to represent your court, uh, yourself in court here on earth, especially not in criminal matters. But if you try to represent yourself in God's cosmic court of justice, you have absolutely no hope. It's not even a chance, not a, not a prayer. You need someone else to plead your case in this courtroom. The only person who can do that is Jesus. And the reason he can plead your case is because he is the propitiation for your sins. He died in your place, and his one legal argument is, if you are a believer, I died for this person. When you turn from your sin and place your trust in Jesus Christ alone, you can have confidence that Jesus died for your sins and that he's your defense attorney. He's your lawyer before the Father's judgment throne. And if Jesus is your attorney, your lifestyle will show it. Your life will give evidence of your faith. And that evidence is a lifestyle of obedience to God's commands. So let me ask you all today, do you have... Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.